Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Our guest today on the program is Brian Zand. Brian is a founder and pastor at the Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's the author of Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and most recently, Postcards from Babylon. Postcards from Babylon is Brian's attempt to think through what it's like to live in the middle of a culture obsessed with nationalism and empire. He's become something of a leading light in the resistance against nationalism, Trumpism, militarism, and all the other isms that seem to be gathering against the people of God for quite some time now. But somehow, Brian has managed to emerge from all of this with wisdom, kindness, humility, generosity, and a sense of humor. Brian joined the tent to talk about his books and his life, where he came from, where he is now, and how he got there. And we also talked a bit about the documentary movie that has been made based on his book, Postcards from Babylon. And we interviewed Kathy and David Peters, the directors of that movie, on a previous episode. Sean, Chris, and I really enjoyed putting together this episode for you, and I hope you enjoy it too. So, I mean, first of all, where can you tell us a little bit about where you where you were born into? What kind of imagination did you inherit? Yeah, I uh, I am sitting here in my basement at my writing desk, which is now also my zooming desk, ten miles from where I grew up as a child. I kind of traveled all over the world, but I've always come right back here. Uh, I'm in St. Joseph, Missouri, and my father was a judge, very good man. Uh, and a Baptist, Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, you know, that. It was just on the periphery of my life. I mean, it was just part of my life. I mean, we went to church on Sunday. Uh, I, I would have thought of Jesus when I did as, you know, a historical figure on the periphery of my thinking. Okay. I mean, I had never even bothered to think enough about Jesus to ascertain what I might or might not believe. It was just part and parcel of growing up. But when I was a sophomore in high school, 16 years old, I had a, I had a dramatic encounter with mm-hmm. Jesus, and it was, um, it was kind of spectacular mm-hmm. and un, unanticipated entirely. And kind of overnight, I went from being the high school Zeppelin freak after man with real long hair that was and to being this high school jesus freak yeah everybody knew me in high school they all called me fry that was my nobody called me brian or pastor brian (laughs) i was fry (laughs) teachers and everybody just everybody that was my nickname and uh people would just say fry i can't believe what's happened to you and i would say yeah i can't either crazy isn't it but it's happened yeah and so this was in the days of the Jesus movement, if people right. know what that is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which that's really where my spiritual roots are. Yeah. And in the early days of the Jesus movement, and I would be, by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry that then turned into Word of Life Church that I've been leading for 39 years. So I've done like one thing, right? In the early days of the Jesus movement, and I was a leader in it, but I, I was as young as you could possibly be. I was 17, and most of the leaders were in their maybe mid-20s and late-20s. So I was younger than everybody. But I can tell you that um, it was it was countercultural. I mean, and we took the Sermon on the Mount seriously. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were not nationalists. We would have laughed at that. We were like, mm-hmm. whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we had enough of the counterculture hippie thing. Yeah. That we were suspicious yeah. of the man, yeah, and especially right. the government man. Yeah. And we weren't we weren't taking sides. We didn't really care. We just knew that there was something else that we were into. And it stayed that way. And so I was, I mean, 
when I was 17, 18, 19 years old, I would have told you that waging war is incompatible with following Jesus. And I, I hadn't, <laughs> trust me, I'd never heard of Stanley Harawas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'd read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, yeah, so, yeah. Well, there it is. Yeah. Uh, but by the time, by the time we started getting into the 80s, the Jesus movement really just gets absorbed into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. There, there was a time maybe early on when, when the emphasis really just was uh, a genuine experience of the spirit of God, but then it began to be co-opted into the religious right and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I went along for the ride just because that's the trajectory. I was in this flow. I was a part of this thing that was happening. And I, and I went, went along with it for a long time until for whatever reason, mm-hmm. at the age of 45, I mean, it began a little earlier, but by the time I was 45, which is, you know, halfway to 90, folks, <laughs> you're getting on, my friend. I'm 45 I, I, this year, Brian. Okay, you're halfway to 90, brother. And, but I just sort of woke up. Like, a, like an alarm clock going off in my soul. And I thought, what's going on here? How did I get here? I, I didn't start off as a radical Jesus freak, only to end up as a Republican with a Jesus fish on my SUV. You know, and I thought, that's what's happened to me. And that led to a lot of rethinking. And I don't remember what, you were asking me a question, but that's a little of my story. Okay, so that's grew up kind of conservative Southern Baptist, but that really wasn't who I was. That was the world I was in. Then I was Jesus movement, and that was radical until eventually it was not at all radical or subversive. It was just the religious wing of the Republican Party, which is pretty lame. And then I woke up. I mean, I read a story, probably your story. I've heard the story of you watching uh, Desert Storm yeah, that's in one of my books. I don't remember which one. Okay, so probably no, Farewell it, to it, Mars. It, it, it's, it's the opening of Farewell to Mars. Okay. Yeah. Can you Where, tell okay. us that? <laughs> Where does that come in, that story? I love that uh, story. Well, here, here's what happened. In almost exactly, I mean, for all I know, what is today? It could be like a, exactly 30 yeah. years ago today or this week. Um, it was uh, Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. The Gulf War, the first one. Yeah. Storm <laughs> you know, and Norman. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, in my early 30s. See, yeah, I guess that'd be right. And uh, I was just so excited because there was going to be a war and it's going to be mm. on television mm. live. I mean, you know, Vietnam, we had, you know, grainy black and white footage, you know, that would come, but no, this is going to be live. Yeah. This is what made CNN. This is what made yeah. Blitzer's career, standing yeah. up on the roof of some Baghdad hotel, you know, and giving the play-by-play of, of uh, Operation Desert Storm and the missiles. And, the, yeah. and we knew it was happening. We knew it was going to happen. It was the craziest thing. It's like we could schedule it. Bad you know. Yeah. And so I had friends over and we ordered pizza. It yeah. was just like watching the Super Bowl. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's how, that's, that's how I watched it. Yeah. As um, America is going to war, America's pastor prayed with America's president and it was all blessed and sanctioned. And we knew for sure that God was on our side. And I watched this war play yeah. out in real time on television. And I was entertained. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I think we laughed, you know, and how cool that is. And Storm and Norman and all that business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I didn't think about it again. I didn't think about it for 15 years. I never thought about it again. And then in 2006, this would have been 15 years later. I mean, I, I, I had not thought about it ever. Yeah. And I was, I was in prayer. I was, I was engaged in a, in a form of a contemplative prayer that I call sitting with Jesus, which I kind of teach on that in my prayer school. And it's Basically, as advertised, it's sitting with Jesus, acknowledging the presence of Jesus sitting. And, and while I was doing that, for there was no connection. There was not a chain of thoughts. It was just, it came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I suddenly saw that whole episode replayed mm-hmm. like an incriminating surveillance video. I saw myself eating pizza, 
watching a war with friends and laughing and being mm. entertained. Mm-hmm. And I and I felt I know I sound super spiritual and mystical, but I'm just telling my story. Uh, I heard, sensed, intuited Jesus say mm. that was your worst sin, and mm. it 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 was like a heavy blow. It was yeah. like a it was, and I can only describe it as something similar to maybe what Peter felt yeah. when the cock crowed. Yeah. And I, I did, I wept bitterly. And it led to a, I was already beginning to read some things, some things, but that led to profound rethinking. And that's really where the Farewell to Mars book is born. And that's why I tell this story in the opening of that. So, so yeah. that's, so, so I understand, I mean, there was, there was a couple of decades where I was very comfortable with, I wouldn't have called it religious nationalism. I wouldn't have used that phrase. I probably would have resisted it if you had tried to label me like that. You would have exempted yourself from the label. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but I would have just seen that, you know, America is a force of righteousness in the world and certainly raised up by God and all of that kind of civil religion language. I would have been comfortable with it and just said, you know, I mean, I would have said something like God is on our side, even though I knew that Dylan would be upset if I did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about the Bob Dylan song with God on our side, which is a brilliant song. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're an, if you're a Christian and you're loving bombs anyway, you already live with, uh, with, the, with the psychotic break. So you could probably have Bob Dylan in your life as well. I mean, you're already living with this complete divergence. Yeah. See, I mean, I've been with Dylan since, well, it was about the same time that I had my dramatic encounter with Jesus, and uh, it was almost exactly the same time. I got into Dylan with Blood on the Tracks, which was uh, January 75, and uh, I remember, I, I remember, you know, praying that, that Bob Dylan would get saved. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, then we heard rumors, and I, yeah. I don't even how did we have rumors before the internet? <laughs> older brothers, rumors. older cousins, I think. Yeah, I got but we heard rumors yeah. that Dylan had become a Christian. Right. So I thought, you know, could it be? Yeah. And I remember the day that the Slow Train album came out, I went to Musicland. It was a Tuesday. I bought that album. I'm looking at the cover. I'm thinking, I don't know, man. It looks like that, that guy with the pickaxe. With, looks like he's taking up his cross. Oh, I'm probably just reading too much into this. <laughs> and and then went to it was it was the catacombs that became Word of Life Church, our, yeah. our coffee house, put it on the turntable, and it was just, you know, precious angel, gotta serve somebody. I believe in you, slow train coming, gonna change my way of thinking. This song just floored me. And uh I don't know, we're off track now. I'm sorry. But why do you <laughs> think okay, this is something I'm I'm interested in. Like We've got the Sermon on the Mount. We've got the majority of people in the country who would claim that they follow Jesus or hold him in respect. We've got people like Bob Dylan. We've got massive pop cultural heroes. None of them are American militant nationalists. So what is it in the popular, like why do people who like all those other things, they like Jesus, they like well, Bob Dylan. I mean, the artistic world comes from a different place. The poetic and the prophetic are related. I mean, they're yeah. capable of seeing something other. But what is it in the human heart that prefers dropping bombs on enemies than loving them? I, I think it is the great, it is the single greatest rival to the kingdom of Christ. It always, look, I think it was a temptation for Jesus, okay? I mean, that is that, and the way they're arranged in Matthew's gospel, it's the third temptation. And I think that's the real one, the big one. And the temptation is to somehow compromise with the Satan to be granted uh, authority over the nation. See, he's in the wilderness. He's beginning his ministry. He's thinking about what form it's to take. And one option that is open to Jesus is the conventional route of gaining violent power and using it for good. I mean, drive out the Romans, whatever, set up an alternative, but you have to have your violent revolution. You have to get rid, you have to kill the bad guys. That is so pragmatic. It's so, it seems so simple to us. It seems so black and white. Well, the problem is these people, we got these bad guys. Yeah. I think of all the good you could do. I mean, I know it it sounds crass when I say it like that, but I think it's just 
I think it's the myth of redemptive violence is almost endlessly seductive. Yes. And I think it takes some kind of, of spiritual resource to be able to see through it and resist it. It takes uh, being born again, yeah. <laughs> maybe more than once. <laughs> yeah. Being born from above, being born again, brought to a moment where you can rethink everything in the light of something new. And that for me, that radical newness is Jesus. You know, I'm a, I'm first, I write books, I write, you know, I've written nine books in like the last 11, 12 years, but, but, you know, my day job is I'm still just a pastor of a church and, and yeah. the center of that is writing sermons. Yeah. And I've, you know, already been working on Sundays and, and so I'm giving it the title, the son of God goes forth to war. And I'm preaching from the lectionary. And okay. this week, the reading is the casting out of the demon in the synagogue in Capernaum. Yeah, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, but I'm going to talk about how, how Jesus indeed goes forth to war. He is contending with evil, but he never harms another person in doing that. Is this from Mark? Is this the, uh, the one from the yeah. Gospel of Mark? Do you know, yeah. do you know the, my fun little factoid about that? What do you no. think is, what do you think is uh, the, uh, unique about that story in the Gospel of Mark? If we think that the Gospel of Mark is the first gospel written, right. what do you right. think is unique about that? Well, that's, that's the first thing he does in his public ministry there's baptism yeah. he retreats off he returns and then the first thing he does is that but you're, you're leading up to something don't leave i am i'm leading you. i'm leading you brian i'm giving you a, some a gold nugget here all right i'll preach are it there some... any are there any exorcism exorcisms in the old testament are there any exorcisms and i mean there's there's the david thing with saul if you want to call it that when yeah, he plays he, music he torments his his soul but it doesn't cast the demon out right right yeah it's the first exorcism in the whole Bible. Ah, there you go. Yeah. So not only is Jesus doing something crazy, he's doing something that is not in the toolbox. Right. Prophet. And, and what, what I notice also, because I was just reading that, what you notice is the, the, he's teaching and the people are like, dang, this, yeah. is, this guy's got authority. Yeah. And then there's this demonic interruption. Jesus casts out the demon and people are like, dang i mean really with authority even the you know he's casting out demons i mean yeah. he's In got authority so i don't know what i'll do with the sermon but i'm gonna call it the son of god goes forth to war but i'm, I'm certainly be making the point so that he, the son of god goes forth to war with a sword in his mouth not in his hand yeah and uh he there is some kind of spiritual wickedness to be contended with and jesus does that yeah but he doesn't kill anybody he doesn't hurt anybody in the process. And so um, can we contend for the good? Can we recognize that there is evil in the world in some form combat that without killing people? I think that's the Jesus way. You mean you mentioned you mentioned uh, Jesus killing with the with the words or he's fighting with the words, the sword of his mouth, mm -hmm. which reminds me of the book of Revelation. Well, that's what I'm talking about, which yeah. reminds me of postcards from Babylon, like can you tell us a bit about the the genesis of that project was that started as a direct response to trump or yeah it, it was oh, okay. Okay. sort of yeah it was i was walking the camino de santiago my wife perry and i for the first time we've done it three times now because all we really want to do mm. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh in 2016 mm -hmm fall of 2016 specifically it was our first sabbatical we hadn't had, we hadn't had a break any significant break at all for 35 years as <laughs> been a church wow. yeah and so yeah. we we and, I, and it was specifically at that time because i wanted to be away from the election madness and we made that decision in 2012 i said Perry, i can't go through another election season here it's just it's crazy yeah. and so we're gonna take a break and I, we can do whatever you want but there's got to be an ocean between us and america and so we ended up deciding we wanted to walk the Camino de Santiago, and we did that. And it was life-changing. I know it's a cliche, but it was. Yeah. And along the way, you know, it, it was, we're talking, we're in October of 2016. And every time we would meet people, you know, I mean, most, most people aren't Americans there. You'd meet some, but, uh, you know, as soon as they found out I was an American, they were all alarmed about Trump. Okay. And I would, I would quell their fears. Hmm. I would say, fear not. 
there is no way that man's going to be elected president. Just <laughs> right. don't worry about it. Just, yeah. you know, it's going to go on for another few weeks, All, but then, then he can go away and go do whatever he does. And I was convinced of that. And I, and I, I, I calmed the alarm of every Peregrino I met. And then I, then I came back, you know, just in time for the election. And I'm sure there were all kinds of these former pilgrims from the Camino around the world going, that guy deceived me. <laughs> he led me astray. He promised me this wouldn't happen. It falls. Because, you know, everybody was surprised, including Trump. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Uh, uh, so, so we're into this, and I don't think, I think it was in 20, see, this is 20, I think it was 20, 2018, I guess. Mm -hmm. Early in the year, uh, I typically will, will early in the year go for a spiritual retreat to Conception Abbey. Okay. It's a Benedictine monastery, maybe 35 minutes from here, kind of in, in the middle of nowhere in Missouri, but it's a, it's a really fantastic monastery. They have 65 monks, so it's pretty big. Mm-hmm. And I go there a couple of times a year. I tell Brother Cyprian, the guest master, I, when I'm there, I'm their 66th monk. Right. I tell him, I said, Brother Cyprian, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good monk, aren't I? I'm pretty good at being a monk <laughs> three days a year. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that for three days. And, uh, yeah. Because I, I mean, I go to all, I mean, I, I'm at, I'm there at lauds and vigil and I'm for all the prayer things. The zeal of a new recruit. Yeah, exactly. And I was, I, I, Prior there, uh, Father Daniel was doing some spiritual direction with me while I was there. And he knows I like to walk. So he, he sent me on this. They have a walking trail. It's about three miles. And I did a couple. He said, do a couple of laps. And he gave me some spiritual exercises to do while I was doing that. Mm. And at the, toward the very end, I'm walking by this lake out in front of the monastery. And I just, it seemed to bubble up in me. That, that was the title. Um, I need to write mm -hmm. some postcards from Babylon. Mm -hmm. I, I need to do that. And part, I mean, I, I wanted, I want to help the church. I want to be, I want to do what I can. I've done a lot of writing and thinking in this area, but I also just simply wanted to be on record. Mm -hmm. I've got, I've got seven soon to be eight grandchildren. And when they say, well, what did grandpa do during the Trump era? I want to, I want somebody at least be able to say, well, he at least wrote postcards from Babylon and dedicated it to you. Yeah. So it was, it was a way to be on record that I wasn't duped. I wasn't quiet. I wasn't silent. I didn't go along for the ride. And so that's, that was the impulse, but it wasn't, it wasn't just a matter of, you know, defending myself, I, you know, but I also really want to, I, I want to evangelize Christians. And have you found that? Like, what is your experience of, of you stuck your neck up above the parapet or you became public? Yeah. What has what your experience been amongst people who call themselves Christian? It's what you think it is, I suppose. You get a lot of backlash. Right. You get a lot of people that don't understand, a lot of resistance. But that, really doesn't, that doesn't affect me at all because really, I, I'm not exaggerating. I, this book's been out for two years. Yeah. And I still hear from people probably every day, one way or another, usually via social media somehow, tweeting at me or whatever. Yeah. About how this book helped them, saved them, rescued them. So I can take a lot of criticism if I can get some of that. <laughs> exactly. How would you define, what do you say to somebody when they ask what Christian nationalism is? Uh, well, just as a kind of an elevator pitch. I usually say, well, we, we need to understand what we mean by empire, because that's where it's a real problem. Um, you know, if I visit Portugal, which is one of my favorite countries, we like going there a lot, and I'm in a church on a Sunday morning, and I see a Portuguese flag, you know, off in the corner of the platform, I just see that as rather benign. It becomes a problem when, when national identity and patriotism get mixed in with Christian faith when it's done in the context of an empire. Now, empire for me is not just some pejorative or vague statement. I have I have a standard definition that works for me. I'm not saying it's the definition, it's mine. Yeah. Empires are rich, powerful nations who believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda. Mm. As we read scripture, we see that God seems to delight in nations their ethnicity, their diversity, their culture, but God is opposed to empire. And right. this is a theme that though you may be blind to it, 
Yeah. Once you see it, you'll see it clearly running as a thread from Genesis to Revelation, quite literally. It's always there, sometimes more pronounced than at other times, but it's always there. Because what empires claim for themselves, divine right to rule other nations, manifest destiny, shape history according to their agenda, uh, is the very thing that God has promised to his son. It, it's Jesus who has a divine right to rule. Yeah, right. It's right. Jesus who has manifest destiny to shape history according to his agenda. Right. So in the American context, so America is so big. Uh, when, when I say America, I'm saying four things at once. America is a nation, a culture, an empire, a religion. Now, as a nation, you know, it's a nation, right, with 50 yeah. states and all that. But it's not just a nation. It's also a culture because, you know, in the words of Bullet the Blue Sky, outside, it's America. <laughs> outside, it, I mean, I travel the world, and I still see America everywhere I go. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a culture that has permeated the globe. As a nation and as a culture, there's much you can critique, but there's also much to celebrate. There's much that I can affirm. There's much that I can say is inspirational about America as a nation and a culture. It's a mixed bag. Right. But, but if I wanted, I can say there's things to celebrate. Once you, though, you move to the empire, uh, now, you're, now you're beginning to infringe upon the sovereignty of God. And then America as a religion, well, now you're into you know, heresy and false religion and yeah. all that. Now, if, if you just throw that out to people, they're, they, they're sort of stunned by that. Yeah. So you may take it more slowly. Here, I'm just rushing through it because you, you people are up to speed anyway. Uh, but is it really a debate if Amer it, Americanism as a religion? I, know. I mean, it's think a, about it. It's got all the hallmarks. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, has its, it, it has its mythical sacred history. It has its fathers. It has its sacred documents it has its holy days it has its sacred places and on and on and on it goes i mean can there be it, a debate it is a full-formed religion it will it borrows so heavily from the vocabulary of christianity that there's the real problem is there the code now ancient rome uh was also a religion but it at that point you know, prior to Constantine, isn't borrowing Christian language. So there's a clear distinction between the two. Since Constantine, uh, churches hosted by ostensibly, quote, Christian empires have always had this problem of maintaining fidelity to Christ because they end up thinking that somehow their nation is a particular tool has been raised up by God, you know, that's, yeah. that, that's that language, raised up by God. I genuinely just want to dismiss that and say God has raised Jesus from the dead. Exactly. That's what God has raised up. Yeah. Uh, God, is, God is not saying, okay, I'm going to save the world. How am I going to do it? I'm going to do it through the incarnate logos, crucified and risen. Oh, and I'll need America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and or, yeah. or Byzantium or Russia or Germany or whoever. I, I was curious. So when people come to you and say, Thank you for your postcard to Babylon. It saved me. What do you think they they think they're being saved from? Well, it's two kinds of people that say that. Yeah. Sometimes it's people that actually are being saved from the delusion of religious nationalism. They're, 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 suddenly they see, oh my goodness, yeah. Um, as in the words of of Karl uh, Barth, God cannot serve. God can only rule. In other words, God can't serve someone else's political agenda. Right. He has his own agenda called the kingdom of God. So sometimes th they mean that. Other times they mean, uh, I had already seen what had happened to Christianity in America, and I was pretty much done with it. Yeah, yeah. But it was because of voices like yours that, well, maybe, no, maybe I can hold on to Christian faith, because maybe the whole of the body of Christ is not succumbed to this lure of nationalism. Yeah, right. And I think, I think that's really important. I mean, if you want to talk about the future, I think in one sense, the future, I don't say this with any, um, I'm not depressed when I say it, but I think it's bleak. <laughs> yes. No, I do too. Yeah. Here's what I think. You, you got, you're, you're, you're in the UK. I'm in the UK. I'm Canadian, but I live in the UK. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. This is, I, I wanted to see what you think about this. There's a, it's like a, it's like an accepted truism among certain 
versions of Christian America, that Western Europe is deeply secular, <laughs> but the United States yeah. uh, still holds fast to Christianity. Right. I don't buy that. No, I don't either. When I am, and I've been in Europe a lot, well, I was until COVID, but until then, let's say over the last 10, 15 years, I'm usually in Western Europe three or four times a year. When I'm in Europe, I am always keenly aware of deep Christian roots that are largely forgotten, but it's there. You know, you don't have to look that hard. You see, okay, there has been a formative Christian presence. When I'm in America, what I see is kind of a garish, thin veneer yeah. of uh, civil religion underneath which is rank secularism. I, I, think, I think in the long run of history, one of the things America, I think, will be known for is pioneering the idea of secular governance. I don't want to take us too far afield here. People get alarmed. Say, Brian believes in a theocracy. Well, kind of. I kind of do, except I understand that the kingdom of God is entirely without force. Without yeah, right. coercion at all. You right. have nothing to fear from me. I can't make you do anything. I, we persuade by love, witness, spirit, reason, rhetoric, mm -hmm. and need be martyrdom, but never by force. But I think America will go down as being the nation that first pioneered secular governance. France may have taken it further faster, but it was, it was those American founding fathers that said, so when people tell me, yeah. Um, the same America was founded as a Christian nation. I say, no, that was England. Yeah, uh, yeah. America deliberately said, we're not a Christian nation. We're going to be secular. So, so, but, but I do agree that that is obscured because yeah. of the prevalent prevalence of American civil religion. Once that finally collapses, which mm -hmm. I am cheering on, yeah, yeah. I'm for that because yeah. then we can maybe see more of the case. And that's that's going to happen, by the way. Uh, it's going to happen just demographic. It's just going to happen with age demographics. Yeah. Okay? I mean, <laughs> this is a terrible thing to do. One of the reasons that the storming of the Capitol on January 6th failed is that the, in, the insurrectionists were just too damn old. They're out of breath when they got to the top of the <laughs> <Yeah>. steps. Like, <laughs> and so, so, I mean, yes, I understand that among certain young white males, there remains the presence of, of a white supremacist thing, but I still think that's a pretty small minority. Uh, I think what's going to happen eventually is America will appear to be as secular as it actually is. And, and then the church will have to do the hard work of maintaining a faithful presence through willfully being countercultural. That, that the idea of somehow we have to we have to wield conventional political power to bring about the purposes of God. That will just be a that just be gone because we know it can't even happen. It's just impossible, and so we'll have to content ourselves with being a slightly odd, viewed as odd, subculture of people who actually still believe in these things about Jesus. I wonder whether I just am wondering. I'm noticing the trend, or I'm I'm just. It's a guesstimation. It's an educated guess that, you know, we're from Christian cultures where the dividing lines used to be between like, I don't know, cessationism or charismatic experience right. or yeah. what you think about homosexual marriage or something. Yeah. And but now I, th I think the dividing line is going to be something to do now with power and nationalism. I, th I wonder whether that's going to be like, are you a nationalist church or not? Are you patriotic yeah. or not? Mm. I, I think that's going to start being, people are going to go, I don't really know or care too much what you think about these issues, but do you have a flag in your church? You know, I had not thought about that, but I think you're right. I mean, I've been writing about it. And, yeah. Um, and, and it's going to be something to do with the, the, the violence. I, I do feel like... You know, I, I met some people Sunday. I mean, we're, we're meeting, you know, I'm talking about COVID. Right. Our, probably 80% of our congregations online, but we okay. have through the summer and now had a gathering of sorts of people in person. And I, I met a couple Sunday, first time, it was first time at church, first time mm. they've been at Word Life. And in the course of our conversation, they communicated to me, that's why they were at Word Life. They, they, they've been Christians for a long time and they were just tired of, 
you know, nationalism being the driving force in their church and they were looking for something other. And so that's just one little tiny anecdote, but I think that's going to be played out over and over and over and over. And what's driving people from nationalist churches is not secular materialist cynics. It's evangelical sentimental Christians, right? Like the, the exodus from these churches is, is not going to be some sort of loss of faith moment for people. I don't think, I think it's a loss of moral. It's a kind of a moral repulsion that's driving people out of some of these churches. I think not, With not intellectual. Jesus, Jesus shines through. Yeah. Tell me, let's talk about Jesus here. Jesus is the light of the world. Gee, you know, Christians confess that, that Christ shall come again to judge. Right. We, we confess he's the judge, but in one sense, I mean, yes, I have some sort of eschatological position that that is out there, but in one sense, it's all, it's, it's, it's already here. Yeah. Right. Whether people admit, don't we actually know yeah. that Jesus judges us don't we kind of almost all know well he says that, that i do not judge is, you're judged by my words that are already out there we just look at we go that's a perfect life and and, and john yeah, is it exactly. 12 or is it eight john eight or no john eight jesus says who by the way who would dare to say this which one of you convicts me of sin yeah 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 who else? I mean, you put those words in the mouth of anyone else and it sounds ludicrous. I know. But with Jesus, you go, yeah, I, I think he's probably without sin. <laughs> you know, think, think about the, think about the um, new atheists, Dennett and Harris, and whoever they all are. Uh, really what they're doing is shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, they're, they're attacking Christianity. Well, heck, I can do that as good as they do. Uh, what they don't do is attack Jesus. They really no. don't. No, and nobody does. Nietzsche kind of tried, but knew that he failed. He would try to attack Jesus, and he's like, oh, nah, I think the guy's great. I love the guy. You know, so I, I think I think Jesus comes through this untarnished. The church doesn't. The church doesn't. Not at all. But almost the, the worse Christians in America get, the more good Jesus looks. Yeah. And and people people just know. Look, I I got I, I can show you an email right now that I've got from a guy that's reading my books and wants to start an organization called Agnostics for Jesus. I said, well, okay. well yeah, I, I'm going to try to convince you to believe, but okay. But <laughs> but he he loves postcards from Babylon, and he's not a believer, right? But but he says, I think I think you're getting Jesus right. So the hope I have is we just talk about Jesus a whole lot. I've been in these churches. I lived, for an, I lived in America for a while. I've gone to some of these churches. Jesus gets talked about all the time. And if you said to them, you just got to talk about Jesus more, they'd, be, they'd say, what are you talking about? So what, what do you uh, think? Okay, let's what, say this, what do you let, mean? Let Jesus talk for himself. Okay. Um, yep. Do this. I actually, I actually did this. Here's a challenge for pastors out there. Yeah. Preach for six months from the Sermon on the Mount. Mate, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. So. And try to get out of the way. Yeah. yeah. And, and don't try to make it safe. Yeah. And just say, I did that at our church, Change Our Church. And probably almost every Sunday, someone would come up to me afterwards and say, are you saying that? <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and because, because the cognitive dissonance was yeah. too great if they saw Jesus challenging some of these things, so they, had, they could turn it into Pastor yeah. Brian. Yeah. And I'm saying, oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm doing my best to say as little as I possibly can. Yeah, exactly. What do you, what do you think Jesus is saying here? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it's one thing to use Jesus as like a factor in an atonement equation or something like that, rather than... No, 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 no. Uh, let's let's read. What is what does Jesus say? How does he address this? What does Jesus have to say about this? Yeah. Uh, you know what I hear. I mean, I know these churches too, and I hear a lot of proverbial wisdom. Yeah. With the name of Jesus slapped on now and then, and Jesus usually, as as I just said, a factor in an atonement equation. Yeah. That that Jesus is the one that's going to somehow get you into heaven when you die. But the sermons themselves are, I would yeah. describe them as, you know, based in Proverbs, <laughs> not yeah. in the Gospels. No, exactly. 
it's funny you mentioned i didn't set you up for this at all but i, I haven't even announced it to the tent theology listening crowd but i'm actually going to launch a little uh a spring school where we're just going to look at the sermon on the mount line by line we're Fantastic. just going to go through it and it's Fantastic. and i'm, I'm gonna i was actually about to start to to put the word out to people to see if they wanted to come along on this this school this theology school but that's what we're going to do i don't know if i'll ever do it it's been a I, it could happen it's kind of a fantasy i have um uh, you know i've been leading pilgrim tours in the holy land for over 20 years yeah and um uh, one of my favorite places is the mount of beatitudes and they have built guests house there within the last i don't know three four five years mm-hmm. so you could actually have uh, a conference there hmm. and, and i i don't you know it'd, it'd be expensive how do you work it out but i i would love to do some sort of yeah Theological conference on the Sermon on the Mount at the Mount of Beatitudes. And yeah. uh, wow, that would be so great. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to give up on that quite yet. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I mean, that is the, that is the, the move for the future, isn't it? I mean, it, it's got to just be just so. listen to Jesus's voice. Just shut up and listen to his voice for a while. And right. Like it's got to be the, the next stage for us right now. Yeah. As, as we're in this smoking wreckage of Christendom. <laughs> like well, we've got I mean, to I stop mean, and listen. I mean, what do we say? Jesus saves. So we're yeah. in this smoking wreckage. Yeah, how exactly. are we going to survive this? Jesus is going to have to save us. But how do we, I mean, what, how do you think you run a church? And, and I'm interested in organizational health. And yeah, how do we stop Jesus followers from just becoming, what do we start doing now that will we'll make sure we don't just become a corrupt institution? in 20 years time, 15 years time, what kind know. of stuff do we still have to start doing? I think we have to emphasize spiritual formation, which has never been a strong suit no. among evangelicals. Right. By the way, for what it's worth, I just want to throw this in. I have never, ever in my life self-identified as an evangelical, ever. Right. Uh, I was like just a Jesus freak. And then, then I probably would call myself a charismatic. And we intentionally, if you'd say, no, I'm not an evangelical. I'm a charismatic, you know, evangelicals are like Southern Baptists. That's not me. <laughs> um, it was, but it was the culture wars that drove everybody under the same tent. In, but even in, you know, then charismatic. There's a lot of Roman, Roman Catholics in that tent too. Evangelical. We've just never been. And so that for the last 10, 15 years has been a real emphasis yeah. That's what yeah. I do with prayer school, you know. Yeah. Uh, my wife is a Benedictine, three-year program trained spiritual director. And so, you know, we're kind of setting the tone, especially among the leadership in our, in our church, with a, a strong, strong, strong emphasis on spiritual practices and formation, not you know, not just trying to imitate the American corporate culture and make it about Christianity, make our product Jesus. So it, it, it has to have this contemplative feel, spiritual practices, spiritual formation, but that's, that's a foundation you can build on. And I'm, 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 like, I'm like really convinced that that, you know, sometimes I say, I don't know, but I think that is kind of the answer. So, so here's the thing. In, in, in a charismatic evangelical church, if you want to become a spiritual director, we would like have a, you know, you, we would come up with a way that you come to three classes on a Saturday and then you're a spiritual director. You know, instead of, instead of a three-year course that, that, that is demanding and rigorous, uh, I, I think we need to return to some things that, that take time and, and there's real qualification and an emphasis on, on just things that are slow and they take a long time. You can't do it fast. And prayer school is, I know I never, prayer school. I mean, I'm not trying to, I don't even have one coming up. So I, I'm not, that's not my thing, but the story of it's interesting. When I kind of went through my own, I call it the water to wine journey uh, of finding a much deeper, richer, substantive faith in, in midlife. Uh, maybe the most important thing that came out of that was learning how to pray. Mm. and how to pray well. And I, I, don't, it, I can't tell the whole story here. It took way too long, but, but I, I did learn how to pray well, and it involved 
a morning prayer liturgy that I was able to kind of discover and curate just organically over about 18 months. And I just, it changed my life the way I was praying. And our team at Word of Life noticed and they said, something's different with you. I said, all right, I think that's how I'm praying. They said, can you teach us? I said, yeah, I suppose I could. Okay. And I said, you know, so I, I scheduled an hour to teach it to him. And I realized this takes like five hours. I didn't know there was so much here. And then, and then the church started asking. So the point is, I've never asked to do a prayer school anywhere, but it just kind of, it was one of these things that got out there. Okay. And I just did, I just didn't. And I always said I was never going to do one online because I wanted it to be much more incarnational in the flesh right there, eye to eye. But then COVID hit. And so I've done a few, I've done, I think I've done five online, but um, I've, I've done now 83, 84 prayer schools. And I, I can tell you this, it is the best thing I do as a pastor. It's the most helpful thing I do for people. Here, here's another thing. And I, I was just talking to the team about it just today. We have made, we have separated evangelism and discipleship. A great gulf is fixed between the twain. Okay. And, and, and evangelism was some form of asking Jesus into your heart so that you go to heaven. And, and, and it, would, it would deliberately diminish any significance with the church. You do something that saves your private postmortem status. We've kind of done away with that entirely. I mean, yeah. we have have a long time ago, but I mean, what we've done away that we really don't make a distinction between evangelism and discipleship. There's not, it's just, it's all learning to live the Jesus way. See what happens if, when you turn salvation into heaven and hell minimalism, ticket to heaven, then yeah. you are endlessly trying to sell people the optional upgrade into actual discipleship. Yeah, exactly. And they almost never really are that interested. Yeah. You're already safe. Do you want to try this really hard life? <laughs> yeah, and, and and by the way, this this is the pattern of the early church. I mean, their evangelism was their catechism, essentially. I mean, yeah, right. And, right. and in fact, the idea that there were people standing out on the street corners of Alexandria, passing out tracts and asking people to pray as sinners. Sure. No, of course not. They were simply being this alternative society. And others were attracted to it, and they didn't make it easy to join. Yeah, you had to work hard to, to be back. Yeah, they said, ah, you know, you sure you want to be part of this? You probably don't. You know, they would almost like try to talk you out of it. Yeah, yeah. And their emphasis was on praxis, not on beliefs. Yeah. They said, we can, we can teach you what to believe in one week, but it's going to take us two or three years to get your, how you live. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then we'll baptize you. Yeah. And they would say, try it out, like live with us for a while. And if you like, right. if, if you can right. hack it. Yeah. I think that kind of shift is what's going to have to happen. I'm, I'm going to do a little shout out. There's two listeners show, Kennedy and Rachel, who both have written to me. And they, are, they were interested in this very topic. I'm so glad you started talking about it. The idea of like, they used to be really fired up for evangelism in their old evangelical charismatic way days and they can't be evangelical charismatics anymore so now what do they do with evangelism so what would you say to kennedy and rachel what do you say to them when they say we want to i know what i know what i'm going to say yeah and i don't know what the demographics of this podcast are some some of these people may hate this i don't know <laughs> but i'm going to say it and then i'm going to defend it yeah i'm going to try to defend it i may i may fail i think in our present culture, evangelism mostly looks like inviting people to good churches. Okay. And, you know, a good church, a healthy church that's actually trying to live the Jesus way without any other agenda. Okay. And get, and get rid of this change the world language. Right. Change the world. I mean, anymore, that sounds like, well, that just sounds like a lot of work. It's hard work, change yeah. World. I, I, my, my ambitions are a lot more humble than that. Yeah. Uh, could we just be a little community of people who are kind of already being changed by Jesus? Right. And then try to live beautiful lives. That seems like, and, and you know what, let's leave the changing of the world, which is a euphemism for saving the world. Let's just leave that to Jesus. That's back to empire again. Yeah. Let's just leave that to Jesus. Um, I, I see the idea that, you know, evangelism is somehow connected to soteriology uh, being yeah. saved in some yeah. way. Yeah. 
the idea that we go about that by here is a private individual who's going to have their personal, i.e. private relationship with Jesus. Doesn't matter about the church. We don't care about the church. Just, you know, it's going to be you and Jesus. And that, 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 that began in revivalism, which yeah. I understand how it comes about. Because, you know, you eventually end up with a, with a Christendom, that is, with a baptized continent yeah. in Europe. And then people get interested in, well, maybe we should actually have a more vibrant experience of our faith. And so that's a little bit in the Reformation, although I don't know if that's really what's going on there. But it certainly becomes, once we get to the Wesleys and Whitfield, and in America you have Edwards, and then a few generations later, Finney. And, and then it kind of reaches the apex with Billy Graham, uh, which was a movement that never, I mean, they emphasize church in a secondary sense or in the sense yeah. that, you know, uh, once you're saved, now you should find you a should church. Find maybe, a church. They do, maybe they don't. Yeah. Uh, I think all of that has to go away. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think I, who was it? Cyprian, the, the church father who said um, there is no salvation outside the church. Yeah. I think I agree with that. Understanding we have to, we have to understand what we mean by salvation and church. And yeah. I, I'm not saying if you're not, you know, baptized, you can't go to heaven when you die. That I'm not saying anything remotely like that. I'm not even talking about morning issues. I'm just talking that the, the kind of salvation that Jesus brings that he yeah. tends to call the kingdom of God. Yeah, exactly. Cannot be experienced really as a solo project. No. It's done as a community of people yeah. together. Yeah. And so I think that's what evangelism needs to look like. I think that needs to be the emphasis. I know it's very easy to be deeply cynical toward mm. the church. I get it. I understand it. And yeah. maybe the church deserves every bit of it. And yet still, I don't know how to go about living what Jesus seems to call us to, unless I do it with other people who have the same intention. Oh, Brian, now you're sounding like my friend Brad Jerzak when, he tell, when I talk to him well, about the church. Come on now. I mean, <laughs> Brad's like my best friend. You know, I, I text with Brad like we're, I don't know, like every day few hours it's pathetic <laughs> man I, I, but but I, we're just I, like our thoughts or what we're reading or what books we're into yeah, right now or yeah. or jokes or <laughs> i've That's converted so him to a kansas city chiefs fan of all things i don't know how i even did that no way <laughs> well he asked me he said now what do i got to do to become a chiefs fan i said what ask patrick to be saved your heart yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's something I have to say. There's something uh, uh, is good for my soul because I definitely have the cynicism. In, like I, I don't like churches at all. Like if I never go into another church again, I, I, I feel like if I never go into another church building again, I'm not going to miss it. And, well, and also in my the, angry days. The, the church has been my saving grace in my writing because I write, you know, I've got these kind of, I mean, I have a, I have a, writing and used to have a traveling speaking life maybe that'll come back um and i also have the local church i do both and it's a lot but i can do both because you know i've been doing this a long time and, and I, the church i don't have to pastor by myself we've got a whole team of yeah. people that are very good at this but by the way which i want to say like like the newbies on our staff are you know have been in our church for 15 years or longer the young people that are leaders, like they're in their thirties and they're leading our church, were, were like literally born in our church. I mean, they've been there all of their life. I think that's pretty healthy. I like that. Um, you don't throw that away lightly. No, but but what I'm saying is, when I when I sit when I write a postcards from Babylon or a farewell to Mars or a little less so sinners in the hands of a loving God or some of those books. I mean, I do it also as a guy that's pastoring like a real church. I'm, I mean, I can, I, can, I can cultivate a niche market out there of people who like what BZ has to say. And, and that you can, I, I sort of say that's easy to do. It may or may not be easy to do, but you, it's possible. But it's different than a real, live, true local church in St. Joseph, Missouri, which is just it's Missouri, my friends. And, and I'm making disciples out of not a 
elite self-identifying group yeah, of people. Yeah, they yeah. I already kind of like BZ yeah. and Bradger, Zach and yeah. all that. I'm already listening to all the smart theological podcasts. No, yeah. these are just people. Yeah. Tent theology is not a church. Right. And so a podcast is not a church. Yeah. But 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 leading one congregation for yeah. 39 years, for whatever else it is, it keeps me honest. Right. Because I I can't I can't craft something that is like boutique for a very narrow niche of people. I have this has to work with just workaday people that for whatever reason ended up at Word of Life Church. And so I so I unapologetically still believe in the church. And I don't know if this will ever happen. I, I told you my one the fantasy of a conference on the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Beatitudes on the Sea of Galilee. The other thing is, I mean, I've been leading a ministry since, technically I've been a pastor for 39 years. In reality, it's more like 45, 44 years, because I was doing it when I was 17. Right. So it's all like, I mean, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult, yeah. which is ridiculous, <laughs> but it's what happened. But the other fantasy is someday, and it'll, it'll probably happen someday, right? I'll just be a member of a church. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I'm not going to be like the, the best one. I won't be the best member, <laughs> but I will be the most supportive of the pastor. Right. Yes. And, I, yeah, and I, my right. fantasy is I want to tell him or her what a great sermon that was Yeah. every Sunday. Yeah. And if it wasn't, I'll lie and say it was and ask Jesus to forgive me. <laughs> you know, I just... Yeah. Just kind of want to do that. <laughs> and you'll write a nice email. But, but I, probably won't join a, I probably won't join a small group or anything, but, but I'll be there on Sunday. And... <laughs> oh, my, Brian. My I, wife would join a small group, but, but I probably won't. <laughs> I enjoyed meeting your wife that time in Jersey. She was, she was, well, a she's, a, she's a, she's a, she's a, she's a, she's a better Christian than I am and a way better pastor. She's the pastor. I'm a good preacher, if I say so. I think I can preach. Good she's good. the prayer, and she leads people. Oh, yeah. That yeah. 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 She's the pastor. She's the one that knows gotcha. everyone in our church. Right. Yeah. Shout out to Perry Zand. Can you tell us, we have about, about five minutes left, but I know you have to, I know your time is precious. Um, tell us a little bit about this documentary. So I interviewed Kathy and David Peters <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. They're lovely people. Really lovely people. Yeah, I, I really, and, um, uh, but tell us a little bit about, this film that's just come out yeah okay so here's the thing you know i just i wrote postcards from babylon and, and i have I, I have publishers you know i've worked with various publishers my next book's been brought out by ivp but at that moment i wasn't under a particular contract when i wrote postcards from babylon i mean i have experience with this i know how it is it takes them forever you give them a manuscript and it's all done. And then like a year and a half or two years later, it becomes a book. And so with postcards, I said, I'm going to circumvent all that. I'm just going to bring it out myself, which is very easy to do these days, or at least compared to what it once was. And so I did that and it got out there and it did well. And people are reading it. And I get a call from this David and Kathy Beers. I do not know them. And they tell me they're filmmakers and they want to make a documentary based on this book. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, what do I, I mean, I don't know anything about me. I said, I, I don't know. This is no, it's, we're going to make the film. And if I had, you know, if I had brought this out with a conventional publisher, it would have been endless problems. Yeah. Right. They would have had the rights and uh, da, 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 da. I just said, sure. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't <laughs> yeah. care. Yeah. God bless you. Well, they, no, they had, they, they, they wanted, they said, well, you, Will you appear in it? I said, okay. well, I if you make it easy for me, yeah, you come to me. You come to me, and yeah, I will. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make this a priority in my life to make a film. That's not what I do. Yeah. And so they started saying, okay, when are you gonna be? I said, I'm not gonna be around. I'm gonna be walking the Camino again. <laughs> and they said, well, what if we came over and walked with you for a week? And I'm going to be honest, at the time, I didn't even know these people. I was like, I don't right. want a film crew walking with me for a week. I don't want that. I didn't say that. And I was, <laughs> I was kind of just a base, ah, if you want. Yeah, yeah. And I made it difficult. They said, well, here's, here's the dates we thought. Where are you going to be? I said, I don't know. I'm walking 500 miles across Spain. I, I don't you know exactly. You know, I can tell you within 
a week of when I'll be somewhere right. maybe. Yeah. But, but they came over and uh, which I, which impressed me and they found us, you know, they caught up with us in Robin and they, they would, they walked with us all day long carrying their gear and then would get a taxi, go back. And they had a, they had a car and they would, you know, Perry and I were purists. We're just carrying everything on our back, but they're got all this gear and they turned yeah. out to be wonderful people. And I really liked them and they got a great story and they love Jesus. And yeah. so me being a little bit standoffish and skeptical of the whole thing that changed when they came over did that with us. And uh, then it was, then I was excited about it and then COVID hit. So they had to work around that, but you know, people like Walter Brueggemann and Shane Claiborne and Lisa Sharon Harper and all kinds of people that I admire are in the film and what i like about it is it's it's super well done i, I don't have anything to do with that i mean i am in it in places but i'm not, I'm not a filmmaker but production wise there's no i'm not cringing i'm going that's professional that's really well done yeah. ted theology people probably actually read books but let's be honest a whole lot of people don't <laughs> yeah a whole people, lot of people nobody don't, reads books but yeah. they'll watch a documentary and so suddenly this opens this, this up to people that are not the kind that are inclined to, you know, and I like the, I mean, I, you know, we're all readers here. We know that, but let's just be honest. There's people that aren't, and, and there's no point in, you know, what are you going to do? Scold them. <laughs> it's not going to work. Show them a documentary and it's, it's well done. Uh, I'm, I'm elated to be in it. It's, it's better than I thought it could be. And uh, I, oh, so good. I bless it. Well, we'll be showing, we'll be putting some links to it in the, in the notes for this show. So uh, I've watched it. I've enjoyed it as well. And there's and a, really good... a series of interviews. I mean, it's, no, it's more it's than interesting. That. Yeah. And there's some, there's some filmed confrontations between different groups of people, which is quite gripping. And yeah, I found, and I don't want to give anything away, but um, I, you know, some of the people I knew and some of the people I didn't, the story with the, with the young uh sergeant that did two tours in Iraq or no Afghanistan mm. I didn't know that story until I was seeing an early version of the film and man I had just said to Perry I really want to meet that guy so so anyway it's I, I'm glad that that it came about and David and Kathy I can tell you this they are people that that are producing films with skill and with professionalism, but also from good faith. Also evidence of what we talked about. You wrote your thing. Some people came out of the woodwork. Like they, their, uh, their career evangelical Christians, they, they did not grow up uh, uh, being aware of Christian nationalism as a problem. They're relatively recently new to this idea. They, they're graduates of Bob Jones University for crying out loud. <laughs> That's as, that's as conservative in the bad sense of there's a good conservative. I, I, I tend to think of myself as theologically conservative because of my commitment to the patristics and that sort of thing. Uh, but, but as far as like a, a bad kind of conservatism, American, you know, that's about as bad as it gets. So they came from, these are not, you know, a couple of hippies from Berkeley, <laughs> put it that way. No, exactly. Yeah. But you know, you write your thing, you write your pieces and, and people find it and they, they change and, and yeah. there is new life outside of that world. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, it's been my pleasure. I, I feel like, you know, that I just sort of talk too much, but anyway, I, <laughs> I, I, I uh, enjoyed myself. Well, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to have you here. So thank you very much. We can't wait to, uh, to see the next book. What can you give us a sneak idea of what the what the next title is going to well, be well i'm calling it uh what can we do when everything's on fire it's in the editing process right uh subtitle use you know publishers usually take care of subtitles i so i didn't even give it one i think you know it'd be something like you know um uh holding on to faith in a secular age that's kind of lame but but that's what it's about right. i mean when everything is on fire i mean th think think of notre dame and the fire that might be what the situation is for Christianity in the Western world in the early 21st century. We're facing a lot of challenges. What do we do? And, and is it possible to rethink, maybe even do some deconstruction of your faith and still when the day is done, be a Christian? And I think so. And, and this is me speaking as maybe a pastor. 
trying, try, I'll say it this way, trying to pastor people through that maybe necessary but dangerous and difficult process of deconstruction and have something other than ashes at the end. Right. That sounds exactly what we need for this age. Thank you so much for talking right, well, to me. Thank I really, you. really appreciate it. And we will see you again soon, I hope. I hope so. I hope so. I hope, on, hope in person we'll cross paths somewhere. One day. Maybe maybe in Spain. <laughs> ah, that's, that's a good place to go looking for me. <laughs> that's great. I will see you in Spain. It's a date. That's Until it. then, great. farewell. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10thTheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.